No, I say, I say to the fans that the fans are the fans and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reactions. Football, everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I would get a taxi back to Manchester. The only time a tennis ball has ever made me angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis ball. These boys are fucking mentality <laughs> giants. It's unbelievable. This is a great football and country because these players and where we play that rubbish. Yeah. In August 2020, yeah, I'm taking over, and that's been decided. I'm angry, I'm angry, Tony, I have to be honest with you. Stephen Kenny, we've won it. So go on, go back to Scotland and get lost. And I'm certainly going to be a part of that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to make sure we're even better. And Vitek is there! Robbie Brady brings us all to Hello and welcome to another edition of the Tree at the Back podcast brought to you by BackpageFootball.com. Joining me this week is Enna Higgins. Hope you're well, Enna. Yep, all good, thanks. Good stuff. Um, before we kick off, just sending our, our best wishes to Phil, who can't make it tonight. I, I don't know, is he scared off by Ralph Ragnick already? But uh, I know he'd never miss an opportunity to big up uh, big Divock Origis. But, uh, but don't worry, Phil. If you're listening, I'll be sure to to play devil's advocate on, on any pre- premature Ralph bluster. What do you think, Enda? Yeah, I mean, it, it's tough when a new manager comes in. You always try and and see things that weren't there before. Um, and listen, Ralph had a very impressive week in front of the cameras in terms of his, <laughs> you know, yeah. his uh, uh, charisma. He he speaks all the modern lingo that, you know, has journalists um, in the palm of his hands really already by the sounds of it. And then talking about control so much, the press, and then, you know, nice comments about Tuchel and Klopp and, Hassan Hootl and all these guys. So I mean, he he talked the talk, but um, uh, you have to say that it, it was a different type of United in the first half against Palace. There definitely was a more of a press than we have seen this season. Uh, and if that's the blueprint going forward, then you know I'd be quite happy to see that. But I suppose on the flip side of that, in the second half, we saw why they don't really do that in the past three seasons because. I mean, they're absolutely out on their feet and it was a really, really sloppy second half, I felt, from United. Um, not to put a dampener on what's been a great kind of couple of weeks in, in terms of topping the Champions League group, getting a point from Chelsea and, and a massive win against Arsenal during the week. I mean, for me, that was a match that they just had to win somehow and and thankfully they did um, because the run of fixtures coming up now with the new manager coming in, um, there really is a good opportunity to build a lot of momentum and uh, over Christmas and the new year. So so hopefully we see that Um but I felt that, you know, particularly Gary Neville's analysis last night where he was going down through each stat individually, mm. you know, XG, XA, the press, you know, all this. And it was a bit too much for me, that kind of stuff. Um, but again, as a United fan, we have suffered, particularly this season, with a lack of shape, a lack of tempo, a lack of any sort of consistency and approach in, t- in terms of how we're trying to, you know, not just win matches, but just as Ralph would say himself, control the game. And, and we've not really done that at all this season. So I can understand that desperation to see that. And I think in fairness, it was there in the first half. And he said himself, he was a bit surprised by how quickly some of the players were, were throwing themselves into that kind of um, formation, that kind of 4-2-2-2 that we saw uh, in Leipzig. I think they tried to replicate that a bit. Um, but, it, it, you know, too many times Sancho and Rashford, in my opinion, ended up on the same wing. And it was a bit it was a bit more disjointed compared to the Arsenal second half, for example, which I thought... Uh, was a very good performance. But overall, I mean, a, a clean sheet, which is very important as well, because I think it's the first clean sheet at Old Trafford since April, which is, 
you know, astonishing really. And then Cavani and Varane are back in training today and, and you know, some of the other play- fringe players get a run out tomorrow. So there's a lot of things lining up well for um, Ranić. Um, so I think the timing worked wor- very well for him in terms of just how low and how bad things were, but yet how, how easy easily it could be to find some momentum again considering the squad at his disposal um and the fixtures that are ahead but you know <laughs> poor old Ronaldo in the last 20 minutes of that Palace match in particular I've never seen I've never seen a lad blowing as hard as he was he couldn't even control the ball which isn't <laughs> Ronaldo slander I'm not going full Jonathan Wilson here but it's just trying to highlight the importance of the rotation he'll have to do in the next especially two months when there's just fixture after fixture um in order to keep the side fresh and going into the last third of the season you know so I, I can imagine Cavani and Ronaldo rotating a lot up front um, uh, and then how that midfield keeps the control that Ranić wants is is a bit concerning also I mean McTominay lost possession 11 times I think at the weekend which just isn't going to really cut it if you want to dominate the games the way the new manager does but overall mm-hmm. it's been been a good week for him and and he he you know he seems to have the confidence and, and self-belief that, you know, unfortunately, Ollie just didn't have in the role. It was a bit like a guy with, you know, who'd won the golden ticket in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And um, he, he did his best, but by the end, it was a bit bit torturous for us all um, in terms of just, you know, he was a broken shell of a man. So, uh, yeah, we, we'll see how the rest of the season goes, but, but I'm not going to go full Gary Neville yet yeah. and say that Ralph's influence is there across the pitch already. But the approach, um, the approach definitely seems to be there and, and that change of, of tactics so yeah we'll see we'll see if if there's more of that to come I suppose we obviously know there's a, a new manager bounce but there seems to be a German manager bounce as well um, obviously when Klopp came to Liverpool it was nearly instantaneous uh, I'll never forget that first game against uh, Spurs when he arrived mm. uh, and it was chalk and cheese from what we were used to um, obviously Tuchel is now the most recent example at Chelsea and it was more or less overnight, and I think um, Carragher and Neville uh, on Monday Night Football kind of showed that the changes there were more defensively. I think um, under Lampard, they were a little bit stretched, and that was one of the first things Tuchel changed, was make them a little bit more solid. And again, that seemed uh, an overnight kind of switch that was uh, flicked. Um, I suppose taking a step back slightly, were you, were you surprised United went with this approach for Ragnick? Um, I suppose, you know, it's it's... You hear this thing about Man United DNA and this seems a kind of step away from that approach where he's very much, um, you know, he'll want to control all areas of of, of the team, um, the recruitment, the planning, the uh, the tactics, um, you know, the long-term plan of the club will, will probably rest on him and he's obviously kind of angled for that two-year consultancy role, which I presume will... Parley into a, a director of football of sorts, but were you surprised United were, were happy to go down that route after uh, after the Ali Gunnar Solskjaer um, project or, or plan, if you want to call it, didn't really um, map out as as as, ho- as well as they had hoped. Uh, a little bit. I mean, if you followed the club in the last decade, it, it's not the type of person that certainly the guys upstairs want to bring in. Somebody who who wants that amount of control, and you know. Um, our friend Alan on, on Backpage Football had some pretty damning words to say about his impact in Moscow mm. in terms of, you know, I mean, when he wants control, uh, he, he gets it, you know, um, in terms of the decisions he makes about backroom staff, managers, players, he, and the fact that United have somehow agreed to that. But 
I'd be a bit skeptical in terms of what they've actually agreed to. It, it's a, it's a consultancy role at the moment. It's not necessarily a sporting director role. Um, so what influence he w- he actually will have long term, especially when it's Woodward making promises to you, is is I, I, I I'm still interested to see how that will iron itself out. But I suppose a lot of the criticism of United in the past five to six years, in particular, is that we haven't had football people making kind of football decisions. And it's it's cliche, but I mean, you know, Woodward is an investment banker, uh, so the fact that he had so much control at the club, um, for reasons we know why, um, was always concerning. And already there seems to be a different type of feel with Darren Fletcher. Seems to be very influential now in the back room. Uh, Murta has gotten off to a half decent start, but probably still a bit too close to Woodward for any sort of progressive change there. So to have Ragnick um, be able to assess the team and the club in six months and then to be involved in the new manager search as well as kind of hopefully player development as we saw so successfully uh, with the two uh, Red Bull clubs, uh, it, it seems like a sensible plan to put in place um, as opposed to giving Conte an 18-month contract or giving Poch mm. a three- to four-year contract, in which case if that if those things don't start off well, we're, we're back in the same place, potentially in, in the summer or next Christmas. Whereas with Ranjik, I mean, he has had success in terms of not necessarily the trophies to show for it, but in terms of changing the directions of a club, putting plans in place that clubs can stick to. Um, but with the caveat that he's very trusting of his own people, and and he'll do anything to get them in. I mean, even the new assistant coach who's been announced today is is viewed very skeptically in America after his, especially his his stint with Toronto FC. So, a lot of people were surprised that even he's coming in. But again, so you'll always have that with with new managers. I think I like when new managers bring in their own teams in general because we saw you know when Giggs was handed to Van Hal and yeah. Neville to Moyes and um, you know Carrick to Solskjaer. Uh, it, it's 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 tough for managers to get their own vision across if, if their backroom team aren't their own guys as well. Um, and I don't think we've had really a, a successful number two at United since kind of Faria and Mourinho. And I don't think there's any surprise that Mourinho hasn't won a trophy in his career since Rui Faria kind of left his side. It's a bit of a kind of Peter Taylor, Brian Clough situation there. Um, so, yeah, I think we needed a big personality to come in and, and make big decisions. And, and I think Ranić seems to be have that type of personality um but again i was very surprised that united have actually agreed to the two-year role um you know mm. he he says you couldn't turn down united because of the squad and the club and the players but realistically he turned down chelsea who who would have even been a better fit for him arguably um with the kind of german relationship he has with Werner and Havertz there uh because they weren't offering that consultancy role so um, there is the control element that he's been angling for and United in their desperation have agreed to that. So uh, definitely keep an eye on that. Uh, and as I said, the back page football article was quite revealing in terms of it's not all rosy as you'd think, but as a tactical um, person to have at the club, you know, he certainly is an interesting choice to have. Um, and, you know, a, a much different personality and character to Ollie, which is probably what we needed at this time. Well, I suppose if if anyone who hasn't read uh, Alan Moore's piece, um, and I don't know why you haven't at this point, if you're if you're listening to this podcast, you should be all over that kind of <laughs> stuff. But uh, uh, it, he just uh, Alan's based in in Moscow, and he wrote about how uh, things didn't really go according to plan at Lokomotive Moscow, which was uh, ran its prior club, um, where he was a kind of a sporting director, um, and I think he's 
his general plan was to kind of devise some sort of Red Bull, um, you know, model of, of a club and uh, it didn't really go to plan. And I think they were probably happy to, to see the back of him, um, which I suppose doesn't bode too well for United, but I yeah. mean... Didn't yeah, uh, didn't demand any to, compensation either, which is very yeah, interesting. You know, they could have got a couple odd. of million, could have got an easy a few million off United. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's but interesting. Suppose, yeah, but I mean, aside from that, if you, if you do look at the blueprint, and I said it last week, like it made absolutely no sense whatsoever for Ed Woodward to be choosing the next manager when he himself uh, is going out the door. So I suppose if you do want to try and map out uh, some sort of a blueprint. Mm. It doesn't make it. It's not totally weird to have a character like Rangnick come in, sort things out on the pitch for for six months. Mm. Um, if it goes well and there's no one available, stick on for another while. Yeah. If it does go well and someone like Pochettino or Ten Hag are available, at least the squad then is in slightly better shape. They're more, um, they're more used to the kind of gag and pressing that you'd assume, um, one of those managers would want to apply, and then. If Rangnick does step back uh, and up into the boardroom and is making football decisions, whether it's in, in the transfer window uh, and just trying to, you know, kind of map out a squad in his vision uh, and in the manager's vision, which, you know, if you take Pochettino as an example, you know, they seem like they'd be happy to work together and it would be a good blueprint, I suppose. Um, definitely would make more sense than, like you said, Conte for 18 months um, or Edward were to pick some random manager now and then bail on everything. Uh, at the end of the season and have the next guy uh, making all the transfers and, and just having no kind of, you know, map plotted out for the next two to three seasons, which I think if it does go well with this plan for Reinick, um, you know, you'd have to hand it to him. Um, and, and like you said, that's that's what he wants. That's that's how he sees clubs. He, he's done it at Red Bull. He tried to do that at Lokomotiv Moscow. And now he has uh, he has the golden chalice at United. If If it goes well, it could go very, very well. Um, but it is a it is a massive task. Yeah, absolutely. But again, um, it does give us p- potentially some consistency across the next six to eighteen months in terms of you know. Um, and he was he was very honest. He said, I, "I might recommend myself for the job." You know what I mean? And even that was a, a a slightly interesting insight into the man. I mean, he has a lot of confidence in himself, you know. So, um, but again, if it, the managers that we've been linked to are quite similar to his style as well, so. Um, I wouldn't be too surprised if he picked, you know, somebody like a Ten Hag, for example, yeah. who, who for me is, is probably your number one choice at the moment. Pochettino's stock is falling week after week in Paris, um, which is probably why he was happy to try and bail there mid-season um, and, and in a very ch- challenging circumstances. So Ten Hag's quotes also at the weekend didn't suggest a guy who th- who's, who wants to spend the next five years at Ajax as well. So maybe that's aligning quite nicely for United. And, and there was, uh, I think the Telegraph wrote today that the reason they agreed to the Ranić six months is because they feel that it gives them a better chance at the Ajax manager yeah. in the summer. So uh, yeah, who knows? We're kind of just uh, guessing at the moment, but it, it does see that it does seem like for once there is a plan in place. But again, there was a plan in place with Ollie to just be an interim, <laughs> and uh, they threw that out the window after twelve or thirteen games. So I think hopefully a bit more patience required this time. Mm. On to the Liverpool front end, um, and I mean, it was one of those games against Wolves on Saturday. It wasn't on television. I had to dig up uh, a, a stream, a dodgy stream, Arab commentary. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, DAZN, I mean, they're one of those lads, is it? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it had all the ingredients of, of a game that just wasn't going to go to plan. Um, and I mean, I've, I've been raised on watching, um, you know, Manchester United versus, I don't know, Charlton, for example, and you no know, nil all for 85 minutes. And you're like, yes, they're going to do it. And then typical Fergie time, late winner, and they go on to win the league. And I don't want to go too far with that, but it did feel like a game earned three points with Divock Rigi's last uh, minute goal that could have a huge bearing um, later on the season. Um, I suppose the way the title race is mapping out with three horses in it, um, it felt like a huge three points, especially after Chelsea uh, losing earlier on on, on, on Saturday to, to West Ham. But um, I suppose, you know, Origi's cult status now his annual big goal um, whether it's a winner in the league or, or some huge European uh, Champions League winner or something like that but um, I mean he's a hell of a record and uh, you know I had to admire Klopp's honesty you know he he, he said he loved if Origi had a manager who would play him because he mm. simply doesn't get played um, and I mean I suppose he's had ample opportunity to leave uh, and seems happy to stick around with this uh, this little cult hero, or he's uh, he's etched out for himself. But um, I suppose in terms of the game, I mean, you'll obviously mention the uh, the Jota miss. I mean, mm. scandalous, really. <laughs> yeah, it's when you press oh too hard in FIFA. You know what I mean? It was <laughs> it it was bizarre, really, because even I, I was watching it live, and everything just slowed down for a second, and you thought he's in, and then it just kind of time froze, almost like the Matrix, and it's like, well, maybe not. And then to just belt it the way he did, it, he was getting a lot of <laughs> stick from the Wolves fans at the time. And it was almost as if he, he'd already kind of cupped his hands to his ears and said, yeah, that one's for you. It mm. was in front of the Wolves fans as well, you know, because, um, you know, the simple slide pass or sorry, slide finish was was on either side of the goal. I mean, you know, Cody just closed his eyes and stood there. Um, and knowing Cody's history of matches against Liverpool, he's probably secretly gutted um, that he cleared it off the line. But that's for another day. But um, it was certainly the most bizarre miss I've, I think, I've seen in, in quite some time. I mean, there are other ones you think of, obviously Ronnie Rosenthal and, and Giggs in the FA Cup against Arsenal, where where you know people fire over f- open goals. But this was quite different because again, just that feeling of time standing still and the inevitability all of, all of a sudden drifting away, and and then just expecting something to happen after where there was going to be a penalty or, or going to be over the line. But the sheer shock of the situation that it didn't go in, I, I can't remember anything like that for quite some time. Um, and the fact that Liverpool did get the three points made it even more, sorry, less significant in a way, but almost more significant because, mm. you know, as you said, it was one of those games where nothing was going their way. I mean, Saiz, you know, <laughs> just phenomenal performance, really. Um, Nori as well at wing back, you know, those, the types of clearances, I mean, absolutely stunning. Um, the types of clearances they were making, particularly in the second half, uh, you know, passes from Trent and Thiago weren't quite meeting their mark. But um, yeah, so it was a massive, massive uh, game, I felt, in terms of the context of the season. Liverpool looked a little tired after, you know, a breathtaking yeah. performance against Everton, really. And I think he picked the same 11, or I think 10 of the same 11 started against Wolves. Um, so obviously, that shows how seriously Klopp was taking this game. Obviously, um, had Milan coming midweek, which wasn't important to them, but I think Klopp knew he had to build on the momentum and keep up with with City, who, who were always going to win on Saturday evening. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, fair play to Origi. Somebody said recently, I think he has a better goal to minutes ratio than Alan Shearer in the Premier League or, <laughs> or something like that. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, obvious, the obvious um, comparisons to a certain former player at the wheel in 15 years' time are something we don't need to reference too much. But, uh, yeah, it was it was a huge win. It was an absolutely huge win. And, you know, Liverpool, in fairness, they did play much better in the second half after a very flat first half. Um, you know, and if if... Wolves' final ball had been better. Uh, I think Huang and yeah. uh, Traore were in several times, two on two, against the two um, central defenders. But uh, yeah, it was. It didn't look like it was going to happen. And you know, just Salah's first touch as well uh, to take him away from the defender uh, with twenty mm. seconds left on the game just shows the level he's at at the moment as well. So uh, it was it was frustrating, but not overly surprising. Certainly, this Liverpool season has more feel to it than to the one, two seasons ago where everything kind of went their way all the time. And last season that, that yeah. just kind of slid away and, and the confidence drained a bit from them as well. Even before Van Dyke got injured, it, it didn't feel like the Liverpool that we'd seen two or three seasons ago, whereas that, that feel again is coming back. And I think the former Thiago in particular is playing a huge role in that. And then obviously Fabinho and Van Dyke in their best positions. Um, so if they can keep it up, I think it could be their season that City it still doesn't feel right. They're the balance in their, in their front six and, and Chelsea are really starting to struggle now as well. So certainly Liverpool have the momentum in it. And if they can keep that going and somehow rotate the squad as Klopp has tried to do a lot this season, in fairness, mm. um, it'll be interesting to see if they can st- sustain that. Yeah. And I think Origi has more goals than, uh, than Harry Kane in something like 38 minutes is all he's played this season, which, uh, <laughs> which has a lot for, for, for Harry Kane. Mm. Um, I suppose you mentioned the depth there and obviously with uh, the African Cup of Nations, assuming it, it goes ahead on the horizon, uh, I think Salah and Manny are only missing two or three games, but it is fairly thin there um, and the midfield issues have been well highlighted this year and I think Thiago the past couple of weeks has really come on and he seems to have got over the kind of early injury issues he's had and he seems to be, he seems to be you know, a little bit more physical, uh, in the re- more recent games, I think he's getting stuck in a lot more um, and showing that kind of side to his game. Um, but I suppose, you know, beyond that, if you look at Chelsea, and Chelsea kind of had a hugely rotated squad um, on Saturday, obviously lost to West Ham, but their bench was unbelievable. Um, likewise for City, I mean, they can bench the likes of De Bruyne um, and, you know, still tick on nicely. Jack Grealish has been on the bench as well over the past couple of weeks. Liverpool seems a little bit thinner. Um, obviously, we've just bigged up Origi, um, but he's not going to do it every week. Um, and we've seen, you know, guys like Minamino and Oxford Chamberlain come in and f- in fits and, and starts over the past couple of months. But it does feel like that, you know, if things don't go to plan over Christmas and then with Manny and Salah off for a couple of weeks, um, Firmino's had his injury problems. Obviously, I have a couple of guys to come back into the midfield, but it. it it feels like we've got away with it for so long with this front three, four players being so bulletproof that if one goes down, it could it could really hamper any sort of title hopes that we have. Yeah, it's to be honest, I I think in our preseason pod we we highlighted how concerning it was, but um, the players that have been called upon when needed, you know, Simicast, Harvey Elliott started the season brilliantly. Curtis Jones has only played five games and, and in in the right midfield formation, we, we've seen how comfortable he can be. 
Uh, Joe Gomez is coming back as well. So I, I don't think it's as disastrous as I thought it would be in terms of their squad depth. I pretty much had them down as kind of 12 or 13 players, really, with Jota and Firmino and, you know, a couple of the midfielders rotating the best they can. But that need for that core 11, as you said, to, to be bulletproof. But I don't think it's been as bad as I expected. You know, I mean, obviously, Minamino, Keita haven't produced the cameos and Octay Chamberlain consistently that you would expect but when they've been called upon more often than not they've been okay which I think is what Liverpool need if the other players continue to deliver and you know Salah is just playing with such confidence at the moment you know I mean he's even started tonight against Milan which is (laughs) totally needless but he's almost in that vein of form where why would you leave him out why would you even stop Um, and obviously the African Cup of Nations it's obviously interesting to see the COVID situation and and how that'll affect it but that could play into Liverpool's hands so it's almost impossible to to think about that in four or five weeks time Um, I think if they can keep up their momentum from the Wolves game and the Everton game for the next three to four weeks I think they'll be in very good position as I said earlier I I don't think City and Chelsea necessarily have the fluidity in their first 11 that that some believe Um, now their squad depth is phenomenal but again as we saw against West Ham, when they came up against a more functional um, and settled team, it didn't matter when they brought on you know Lukaku and Pulisic and Hudson-Odoi. Uh, they still struggled. Um, so I think still think Liverpool are going to be in, in, in really, really good shape for the next couple of months. Uh, and then we'll just have to see how the African situation develops. But I, 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 it's impossible to really call how much that will affect them until, until we, yeah. we get to that point. Quickly on Everton Arsenal, which made for a, a, an interesting Monday night football fixture, I think. Um, I suppose all eyes was on Rafa Benitez and, and how poor Everton have been recently. Um, and the ma- and the match kind of definitely mapped out that way. I mean, Richarlison had two um, goals ruled for offside. I think one was just before halftime. Um, lovely header um, past Ramsdale uh, off on a big celebration, ruled out for VAR. And then early into the second half, I think he had another one ruled off where he was just marginally offside again. And it was just felt like one of those nights for Everton. Um, and like, I mean, it, it, it was funny to kind of revel in, in, in the misfortune, I suppose, of, of Ver uh, mm. striking twice, especially for Richarlison. Um, but I, I did, to be honest, I did enjoy the, the late winner. A uh, hell of a strike for Demary Gray uh, and turned my... My uh, my laughter to to Mikel Arteta rather than rather than Everton. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned VAR. I think the second of Charleston goal is really really tough to understand that. But the Ben Godfrey incident, I mean, I I don't think there'll be a worse VAR decision this season. Um, you know, he's basically stamped on his face and didn't even get a yellow card. So it it, it wasn't a great night for VAR in that regard. And then the f- first kind of forty minutes of the match were really really poor. Um, and then the kind of Richarlison offside just seemed to seem to ramp everything up. And, and I thought the second half was really entertaining. Um, and like I don't know where we really stand with Benitez. I, I was very impressed with how we stuck with Newcastle, especially when they went down and he put so much effort into bringing them back up. But yet it didn't seem to really get much respect from the fans in particular towards the end. Um, and then had his spell in, in China, which... Uh, you know, he was pretty uninspiring there uh, with a couple of the lads like, um, you know, Hamsick and um, Rondon really was his only success over there. And he brought him back to Everton and, and he's not doing him much favours at the moment. So uh, he's he's very stubborn, as we've, we've always known with Rafa. And when he goes into defensive in his press conferences, it usually doesn't lead to, to good things on the pitch. But 
you'd probably have to say that overall, especially with Calvert-Lewin injured, who's a huge loss, they, they did fight up for him last night. And, and, and I think that's all you could hope for at this moment when you're, when you're living a moment of nine losses in 10 games. Uh, it did have a feel of Everton's night uh, as it went on, just, you know, Arsenal away on, or Arsenal at home on a Monday night um, after losing at Old Trafford at uh, midweek. So, uh, I thought they played really well. Demario Gray has probably been one of the signings of the season. I was really yeah. surprised that they got him so cheap because I actually felt he was very effective last season in Leverkusen and had really rebuilt some of his reputation over there that you know forced Leicester into buying him years ago uh, as a teenager. So I think it was two million they only had to pay for him in the end, which was staggering, really considering his age and talent. I mean, um, it, it was a, basically a free hit, uh, and he's he's looking so confident at the moment and. Um, that's great to see. And Townsend has actually been quietly effective signing as well. I, I just think the midfielders have probably let them down too often. Uh, but Ducori probably had his best match of the season last night. So it, it's all kind of potentially some momentum building. I mean, I actually did, didn't think they played too badly against Liverpool once they'd, they'd gotten over that first 30 minutes of wave after wave. I mean, once it went 2-1, I felt Everton were really in the game. So, um, you know, the other people felt differently, but... Uh, I thought there was something potentially building there in terms of trying to regain their confidence. So it was a massive win last night and certainly one of the more enjoyable matches mm. in the last few weeks. Well, we've said it, well, I've said it a lot this season when you look at their match day squads and you see, obviously, they've had a couple of big injuries um, with Calvert-Lewin uh, missing for most of the season, but it's such a poor squad considering how much they've spent um, and they covered it on Monday Night Football. I think... A one at one point they'd spend over two hundred million. Um, I think it was uh, when Coleman took over. I think that was the the yeah. figure that when they bought uh, about seven number tens, yeah, um, in the one summer, yeah. So it was, which was bizarre. astonishing. Um, and obviously this week then Marcel Brands has left. He didn't have a huge, uh, a hugely good record. I think his his most expensive player has been Alex Iwobi, who has I think three goals in three years or something like that. Um. Moise Keane experiment didn't usually go to plan at uh, Jean-Philippe Kibamin. Um mm. I just saw a stat that I recklessly injured before he even signed for Everton. And I think since he signed, he's been more or less injured since then. Um, I mean, they, they've struck on a couple of decent players. Decorey, um, one, as you mentioned, Ben Godfrey. But considering the money they've spent, and it will be interesting to see if they stick with Rafa because we do know that he likes to have a lot of power in the transfer market. Um, he's only spent that couple of uh, uh, a million on, on Demary Gray so far. Uh, I think every, all of his other signings have been free transfers um, from the summertime. So it will be interesting, first of all, if they stick with him, um, considering how poor results have been. And, and secondly, if they do give him a little bit more power in the transfer market and, and hope that he's the one that's able to um, get better chewing out of, out of some of their, their big money signings. Yeah, it, it's been very strange. I mean, you talk back to that summer where they signed, you know, Rooney, Sandro Ramirez, uh, Vlasic and Davy Klassen and all those four players wanted to play number 10 and it was just the most bizarre thing really. Um, and then I think Sigerson joined as well. Uh, was it that summer or that following January which even added to the craziness and I don't think they've ever really recovered the balance in the squad uh, when that happened and, and reinvesting the Lukaku money in particular was uh, poorly spent when you look back at it. Um, and then they kind of gave it a go under Ancelotti again um, in terms of trying to, you know, 
get some kind of attacking balance in there. James Rodriguez kind of really let let him down. Uh, Moyes Keane, um, his attitude towards the end was was disgraceful, really, and he he removed all the social media posts, of which one of them was the Everton fans defending the racist abuse he received in in Italy at the time. So uh, that was a really shallow ending, um, considering the. Apart from Duncan Ferguson subbing him off in Old Trafford, I think he did get a lot of support from the fans and, and the backroom staff there. So they've had a few uh, bad eggs in there as well, which hasn't helped. But when you look at the squad now, I think it, it's, you know, Alan, very experienced coming from Syria. I think he started very well last season, but perhaps two or three years too late for him. I think Ducore is, is on his day, still one of the one of the um, most reliable midfielders uh, in, in, in the league. So... Uh, you would hope that they find a bit more balance going forward, but I, I think it was a, a pretty um, revealing summer, as you said, in terms of Gray, Townsend on a free, um, you know, and then they had to mm. bring John Joe Kenny back. Rondon was free as well. They're still somehow st- stuck with St. Tossin as well, who's just knocking around. Um, and even the, like they didn't even get money uh, in for Walcott or Josh King. I mean, Bernard left for under a million. So, I mean, complete imbalance of the books there. So, that perhaps contributed to the summer they did have. So I can't see them spending too big either in, in the near future. And, and I think that's what will probably uh, upset Rafa the most. As you said, once he doesn't get his way in the transfer market, he does go a bit mm-hmm. Antonio Conte. Um, and, you know, Everton for all, for all of their, you know, successful youth teams in the past, there's not much that he seems to be bringing through there at the moment as well, which is quite concerning. It's it's an aging squad as well, and especially when you look at the back four. So even though Godfrey has has a lot to offer, but you know Coleman is, you know, on his last legs as well. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done still. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how how they manage that going forward. But it doesn't look like mm. they're going to give Rafa a blank check anytime soon. Quickly on on Seamus Coleman that you mentioned there. I mean. You have to love his uh, his leadership. Um, mm. Obviously, uh, uh, throwing Demurray Gray around uh, after he scored a goal in front of the fans. Um, I think he was trying to turn him back to around towards the fans to you yeah. know just kind of you know get a couple of a, a few more fist bumps in and, and just it was uh, bizarre, wasn't you know, it? He to, ran into the fans and then ran out <laughs> as yeah. quick as he could, you know. So, uh, but yeah, I mean. Um, it, it's crazy to think he's still only 33 as well. Um, I had to look it up recently. I would have put him at 35 or 36 because it just feels like he's been around so long. So um, his, his fitness after that leg break against Wales as well has been phenomenal. So no, like as you said, his, he still is one of their most important players for, for sure and, and the leadership that he, mm. he takes on. And that's why it was such a shame that he did make that big error uh, in the Merseyside derby. Um, but um, yeah, no, there's still plenty left in the tank there for sure. There is, yeah. And I mean, there's not many players like him knocking around anymore. Um, a near one club man, more or less, at Everton. Um, still captain uh, and still saying all the right things. I mean, his his words about Gray in the, in the interview afterwards were excellent. And he, he he struck me as a guy who, if he wants uh, in, in 20 or 30 years' time to, to go for president of Ireland, I think we'll, we'd all be on board with that. I think he's the type of guy you'd be happy to to to, to, to lead from. Um, and he's, he's just been such a consummate professional um, mm. at Everton uh, it would be a sad to see him go but I think I think a lot of Everton fans probably know that he should have been not replaced but kind of you know moved down the pecking order maybe two or three seasons ago and that hasn't happened so he's still kind of knocking around and he's still you know like you said showing those moments uh, like he did against Liverpool with the mistake but um, yeah. 
Um, I mean, he has the contract extension. He has the extension to 2023, and that'll probably be the end of it for his Everton yeah. journey. You'd imagine he'll be 35 at that stage, um, so he'll he'll probably be eyeing up a return to Killy Beggs on a farm or at that stage or something like that. He just seems to be Maybe. the guy who who might just disappear into obscurity, um, as opposed to president of Ireland. But who knows? But certainly, you'd imagine there's a, <laughs> there's a <laughs> you'd imagine there's a role from uh, in the national team behind the scenes as well um, going forward. Definitely, so it'd be great for him to be involved. Just because I mean, 13 seasons at Everton has just been phenomenal, really successful. Mm. Um, before we sign off, quickly uh, mention of the Bundesliga and um, I suppose the Der Klassiker at the weekend, Bayern obviously coming out on top against Dortmund, Robert Lewandowski obviously the uh, the uh, the Ballon d'Or number two, the number two, the, as he'll forever um, have nightmares about. <laughs> yeah, but he won um, best striker or whatever uh, it was, so <laughs> like, well, yeah. some consolation there. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Erling Haaland still doing uh, amazing things, obviously for for Dortmund. Um, but I mean, we mentioned it before we came on that Bundesliga is kind of having this weird notion that it's that it's more or less uh, uh, over and done with. I mean, there was one point between them going into this game, and now there's four, and it's far from over. Um, and it, it, a lot of people seem to kind of, you know, prematurely anoint Bayern. Obviously, when you have a player of Lewandowski's caliber. Um, but I mean, Dortmund have Erling Haaland. They have a pretty decent squad there themselves. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be uh, sending this um, to the bank just yet. And I think maybe um, Bundesliga should be maybe given a little bit more respect than than, than what it's getting from a, a certain uh, faction of uh, of the media. Yeah, and a lot of people reference that as well when it came to Lewandowski, and and which makes it even more bizarre considering you know Ballon d'Or isn't just about Bundesliga. I mean, he's he's scored across. All, all competitions really and I do think what he achieved the, the season previous should have been factored into that as well um, considering there wasn't a Ballon d'Or so um, it's very strange how much it's being belittled really um, and, but I, I, it, I did feel Dortmund losing was slightly damaging in terms of the title race just because it would have been great to see them you know a point off going into the Christmas break Um or being as close to Bayern as possible. But once you see that four-point gap start to open up after 14 games, I wouldn't necessarily rule out Leverkusen either. I mean, they've, they've got the player of the season so far in Florian Wirtz, and it's incredible how they've just managed to find a better Kai Havertz replacement um, so quickly. And somebody with such similar characteristics, but probably has a bit more personality and physicality to him as well um, for somebody so young. Um, and the squad that they've put together is extremely impressive. Uh, and Freiburg and Hoffenheim, are getting great results as well, but so belittling the overall quality of uh, the Bundesliga yeah. based on Lewandowski's goal stats is is absolutely ridiculous. As far as I'm concerned, I think it's one of the most entertaining leagues to watch every season, um, and the quality that Dortmund and Bayern produce, particularly in their head-to-head matches, um, you know they they never let us down. Mainly because Dortmund turned into a bit of a basket case in those games. The amount of times they had a two-on-two with Lewandowski and Muller at the back was quite disturbing, really. Um, uh, but uh, it was an extremely entertaining match, and, and you know, the <laughs> the dodgy refereeing and the comments after it just seemed to add to the drama <laughs> as well, you know. And and you know, we talk, uh, and you know, I wasn't aware that a referee who had been charged with match fixing in the past uh, had gotten Der Klassiker until it was pointed out online during the game uh, and, and to not even look at the foul on Royce in the box, but then to give the handball 
uh, against uh, Hummels was was hilarious, really. So that inconsistency was was bizarre and just added to the drama mm. as well, uh, as well as Bellingham's comments, which have cost him a cool forty grand. But uh, no, I thought it was it was a brilliant weekend for uh, the Bundesliga overall in terms of you know. Union Berlin, Hoffenheim and Freiburg all keeping chase in, in that top three race as well. And, and Wolfsburg have fallen off a bit, uh, as well as Leipzig and, and Gladbach had a, had a nightmare, um, which is really disappointing for them. They've really suffered after um, uh, losing Marco Rose. So, uh, yeah, but um, all in all, it's, um, it, it's, it's still a fascinating league to watch. And, and again, you wouldn't rule Dortmund out, but they do need to keep Haaland fit mm-hmm. and somehow have a bit more protection uh, for the back four because I think that Bellingham in, in a pivot with um, Julian Brandt, who picked up a very serious injury in that match as well, has probably left them a bit too exposed and, and Witzel will probably leave for free in the summer as well. So they have a lot of work to do there in terms of that balance in midfield. But overall, the, you know, um, I think they can still give it a good go for the rest of the season. I know whoever is lucky enough to get... Jude Bellingham is getting a, a hell of a player, but who knew they were getting such a, an outspoken one as well um, with his post-match comments, uh, which were brilliant. Um, and obviously, Jesse Marsh getting his marching orders at Leipzig after uh, 18 games, I think. Yeah, um, like they had a good summer as well in terms of recruitment. I mean, bringing in Andre Silva, who, you know, was... You know, if you remove Lewandowski's stats, is probably one of the best strikers in in Bundesliga in the past two seasons. Um, uh, and I, I felt losing Upamecano and Kanate wouldn't be as damaging as it was, considering you know both showed fragility last season at times, and Kanate didn't actually play much last season. And and as we've seen from Upamecano's start at Bayern, and particularly at the weekend, you know he's not a flawless defender by any means. So I thought they'd find a way to keep that balance, but. Um, uh, I think losing Sabitzer really was was the key. So close to the end of the transfer window as well, and the fact that he hasn't featured at Bayern at all, it just feels like one of these. Yeah, we'll nab your best player for just <laughs> because we can. Um, he was really important to that structure at Leipzig, uh, and for me, that was a devastating loss for Marsh uh, right before um, the transfer window closed, and they didn't really have a chance to um, to find a suitable replacement. I thought they might have tried to maybe. Uh, bring in Mark Rocca from Bayern as part of a swap deal in, in in that transfer, but that didn't come along. And and Marsh, he he didn't really have the uh, conviction that was required uh, at RB Leipzig. I mean, they have really high standards now, bizarrely considering their infancy. Um, and the fans expect each manager to play with a certain type of uh, characteristic from the previous manager. It, it almost feels like a bit like Swansea a decade ago, where you had um. You know, Rogers, one after uh, another. Yeah, Rogers, yeah. Laudrup, Martinez. There was just like it doesn't matter who you are, just keep keep the train on the tracks. We we you know whether it's whether it's changes in the squad, whether you know we've just been relegated, it doesn't really matter. We just expect you to play the same way and churning out the same kind of style. And Marsh wasn't able to do that this season, and that's probably what cost him the most, um, rather than the results themselves. Although their Champions League efforts as well were were extremely pitiful and and very naive in in the city games in particular. So. Um, yeah, it, it's a shame that he didn't get longer, but again, it was uncomfortable to watch it. And, um, you know, it was on the cards, really, for, you know, uh, once uh, he'd lost three games in a row in the league combined with their Champions League results, it was it, he wasn't going to last too long. First, I thought you treated bollocks to me, guys, honestly. This is live.
We're joined by our Italian football supremo, Emmett Gates of Forbes.com, amongst others, to take a look at all the goings-on in Syria this season. Hope you're well, Emmett. Yeah, keep them well. Um, you flattered me there with the, the Supremo tag. I've a lot to live up to here. Well, after um, Italy winning the Euros and we had you on then, uh, you know, you, you give a good account of yourself. So uh, I think you're you're officially our Italian expert uh, at this stage. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, so the Serie A, I think, is kind of quietly going under the radar uh, this season on this side of Europe, at least with um, the Premier League, obviously, the, the big Goliath and maybe Bundesliga or even the French League starting to take some of our attention out of Lionel Messi's uh, over that direction. But um, Italy is shaping up to be very interesting. Um, four points separate the top four as things stand, uh, which doesn't include Juventus. Um, Jose Marino is a, is a storyline in itself, um, and he usually is. Um, and you've even a, a bit of dodgy play at work at boardroom level um, which makes for all the elements of a, of a, a cracking Italian season. So um, I think to kick off, I think you should probably tell us why we should be jumping on the uh, the Serie A bandwagon at this stage. Um, well, I mean, I think I came on the show at the, just before the season was about to kick off and we kind of talked about all the big-name departures that had kind of left Serie A, you know, last summer, Gigi Donnarumma, Romelu Lukaku, Cristiano Ronaldo, Akraf Hakimi. Um but in a way, the quality that has left the league has actually made the league more unpredictable because there is no one standout team now. Obviously, you had Juventus dominating for nine years in a row and then Inter were clearly the best, had the best team and the best coach in Serie A last season. And then they won, you know, they broke Juve's dominance um, under Antonio Conte. And then, of course, he left uh, also. But it's kind of... All there's maybe four or five teams, you know, depending on if you they get their act together or not. But generally, the top of the table, all the sides are of the same quality, and the quality isn't the greatest. But it actually, it's given us a title race, a genuine, you know, maybe two or three horse race for the first time in honestly decades. You know, you're maybe talking fifteen years for the last time there was a three horse race in Syria. Um, and maybe even four, if you count Atalanta, who are just slowly, gradually, you know, climbing, climbing closer and closer towards the the top of the table. So yeah, definitely the you know the quality isn't what it was even said last year because of uh, as I mentioned all the big name departures, but it has made it a lot more exciting. And there's more goals per game than in Serie A than any league, any of the top five leagues in in Europe this season. And I suppose just concentrating on, on the top two, first of all, uh, just before we came on, you mentioned that you were over at the uh, the Milan Derby recently and they're first and second as things stand. Um, and I suppose, you know, considering some of the players that Inter lost last year, it's not a huge surprise that they kind of taken a step back. But Milan seemed to have taken a huge step forward um, and even kind of looking through their squad, it's not packed full of, I suppose, Stars in their uh, in their prime years, if you want to say that, it's more of a, a, an an old folks' home for the likes of Ibrahimovic and Giroud. Um, but what's what's Stefano Pioli getting right there so far this season? I think, I think it's a two pronged approach. It's really shrewd and smart recruitment from Paolo Maldini, who's the the club sporting director, and it's also that Stefano Pioli is coaching them into he's coached him into a really well-drilled outfit. Um, obviously, you mentioned Ibra and Giroud. 
Um, obviously, Giroud was signed last summer to kind of play, to give some support to Ibrahimovic because, you know, Zlatan was 39 coming 40 and he was becoming more injury prone in the second half of last season. Um, but I think there's a really good mix between very, um, very good youngsters, players in their early to mid 20s. And actually, at one point, Milan had too many of those and not enough experience. And um, Paolo Maldini kind of went against the club's policy because obviously Milan were taken over by Elliott management um, after uh, Lee Young-Hong defaulted on his on his uh, loan. And so Elliott took over, I think it must have been maybe the summer of 2018 or 2019. Can't really remember exactly. But basically they wanted to focus on young players, developing them, and then maybe selling them on for a profit. Um, kind of the same model that FSG adhere to, you know, with Liverpool. Um, but Paolo Maldini made the made the point that look, these players are too young. They need an exp- they need gains an experienced leader. So he kind of fought with the boardroom to to sign Zlatan and bring him back. Obviously his contract had expired at LA Galaxy, so they brought him in. And it is it is not exaggerating to say that the difference that he made to Milan when he arrived, there was a, a pre Ebra and a post-Ebra, and since he has arrived, he has made such a difference. Not in terms of, obviously, in terms of what he can do on the pitch, but his mentality and everything that he's won and all the clubs that he's played for, he's accumulated this wealth of experience and knowledge, and now he's passing that on now to the younger players in the squad, the likes of uh, Rafael Leao, Teo Hernandez, Sandro Tonali. You know, Milan are a very, very young squad. I think if you take Ebra out of the equation and say Simon Kier, who's been another very good sign in, in defence, the average age of Milan, I think, is maybe 22, 23. So they were a very young squad and they needed that gains and that leadership. And so that's what Milan have now. You have the likes of Ibra, Giroud and Simon Kier. They've kind of come in now with the likes of uh, Figuimo Tamori and Liao, Tio Hernandez, Sandro Tonali. And it's just a really nice mix of experience and youth. and Ibra really doesn't have to move that much because he's got a lot of movement around him. And basically, his task is to put the ball in the back of the net. And I think since he's returned, you know, you're coming up on two years since he came back to Milan. And I think he's maybe got... He's closing in on 30 Serie A goals in like 45 games, which is a phenomenal record for a striker, you know, maybe half his age. And you can say that now because he's he's 40 years old. And he genuinely doesn't look like there's any signs of him slowing down. You know, he's he's maybe not as mobile, but he knows how to use his body. He's still got the technique. If you give him the ball, he can make things happen. So Milan have just there's a there's a lot of different elements that have come together and the club has just been really well run at the moment. It's amazing that Zlatan kind of had his his time in MLS and he's already come back and he's still kind of showing that he still has it. Um, after LA Galaxy, I'm just looking at the stats here, right? Over 30 goals uh, in two seasons for Milan, which is incredible going at uh, at 40 years of age. Um, I suppose on the other side of Milan, then you have Inter, who, as you mentioned at the start, we had you on in the season. Um, I think they kind of had some of their own financial issues uh, with Suning's Holy Group. Um, Antonio Conte had obviously... Uh, uh, jumped ship. They they lost Romelu Lukaku to Chelsea and a couple of other players, and I suppose they still have on paper a relatively established side. And you look at the quality of the likes of Latera Martinez, um, and then player you know 
really good experienced players like Perisic and Dzeko around him um, and paired them did great damage in, in, in Europe recently but I suppose under Simone in, in Zaghi now have they regressed hugely since last season or do you just think to kind of maybe step back to the mean a little bit and, and that brings them on par uh, with Milan and, and is what is making up this uh, this title race? Well, it's funny, you know, I kind of predicted a bit of doom and gloom for Inter at the start of the season. Obviously, losing Lukaku, losing Hakimi. You know, Lukaku scored, what, was it 23, 24 goals last season? But they brought in Eden Jacko from Roma for like, I think it was a million euros. You know, it wasn't anything, you know, massive in terms of money. But Jacko has performed so well that they actually don't miss Lukaku. And in a sense, they're kind of more well-rounded because Jacko has more technical ability, I would say, than Lukaku. Obviously, Lukaku is way more pace and you have to play him in a certain way which suited Antonio Conte's system. But Simone Inzaghi has come in, kind of plays the same system, kind of like a 3-5-2, but he gives more... He gives his players more freedom and more license to kind of improvise, if you will, whereas Conte was it's very much repeat the patterns that he sets out and he gives each player two or three different ideas on how to break down the opposition. And Zaghi gives more freedom to his players. So Inter have definitely, A, haven't really suffered that much with the big departures and B, they're actually more entertaining to watch. Um, I don't know if any of you, you caught the, the game against Roma last weekend, but I mean, for 45 minutes, Inter blew Roma away and their sack, Jacko's goal, was the, the the one touch football down the, le- the left hand side was absolutely brilliant, uh, and Jack who scored he didn't celebrate obviously against his former club, but Inter haven't haven't regressed as much as I thought, and and as you mentioned there just before, you know they still have a very good squad. Ivan Perisic is actually playing some of his best football for Inter now under Simone Inzaghi on the left. You know, you've got Nicolo Barella, you've got Alessandro Bastoni at the back, you've uh, Milan Skriniar, and they bought well. You know, they, they obviously brought in Jacko to replace Lukaku, and they got him cheap. And then they bought in Denzel Dumfries on the right to replace Hakimi. So they've bought really well, really smartly. And actually, you know, I kind of predicted at the beginning, I think it came on the show at the start of the season, and I, I, I think I said that Inter really wouldn't do that well. But I'm starting, and Zaghi's starting to make me eat my words now. And they're definitely in the title race. And they still have a really good squad. Like they can bring on Alexis Sanchez. And I know Alexis Sanchez isn't the same one as the, the Arsenal Alexis Sanchez, but he can still make a difference with 10 or 15 minutes to go in a game. And Latro, for example, was rested against Roma, like he didn't play. And yet they still dismantle Roma 3 0 in Rome. So Inter have definitely surprised me and I I think they will be there or thereabouts come the end of the season. Emmett, on to Napoli then. Always much lauded and were very impressive at the start of the season. But it feels like, especially since the draw against Verona, they've really fallen off. Uh, apart from that Lazio performance, the 4-0, which was, uh, for me, probably the best Serie A performance of the season, which Inter's performance at the weekend against Roma, a, a close second. But if you look at the squad, I mean, Mertens is 35 in the summer. Koulibaly, 31 in the summer. Uh, Insigne might run down his contract. That still hasn't been sorted. It feels like this is potentially the last chance for that generation to really have one go at Serie A, especially when you consider the struggles of Juventus and, you know, 
even though the Milan clubs are at, at the top two at the moment, it's still not the strongest squads they've had in the past two decades. Um, do you think there's any chance that they can make it work this year? Yeah, I do agree in a sense that it kind of is now or never for a lot of that team. The likes of Koulibaly, Lorenzo Insigne, Mertens, you know, players, maybe Fabian Ruiz also, for example, players that have been there for the last two or three years and were kind of part of the 2017-18 season when they came so close to winning the title when Maurizio Sarri was manager. They obviously kind of faltered at the last hurdle. Um and a lot of that team is still there now. And you know what? Napoli can do it. Obviously, because as we've highlighted, you know, the what's going on with Juve at the moment and the Milan clubs obviously aren't as strong as they were, you know, decades past. Um, the problem with Napoli is I feel that they have a really good 12 or 13 players. But if you start to take one or two out, then there's chinks in the armour and they're really not as good. Like, for example, against Atalanta... Um, at the weekend, I don't know if and if you, you you caught that game, it was absolutely unbelievable. It was classic Atalanta game. You know, it was just it's like a basketball game. It was just one attack to the next, just the ball ping ponging from one side to the next. Um, Napoli were missing seven starters. Um, like Insigne, Lorenzo Insigne was out. Victor Ossiman obviously is out with a fractured face. Um, Anguisa, who's been really good since he signed on loan from Fulham, he was missing. Um, I'm trying to think who else Matteo Politano who's been a key player under Luciano Spalletti this season he came on for the last five minutes um, and Amsen Kula- as well has a big loss isn't he at the moment who? Amsen uh, Victor up front oh yeah yeah absolutely huge but I kind of his his injury was kind of when it happened and it it was the news was released that he was out for three months I think I actually tweeted saying that this could change the trajectory of the title race with him out for three months because with him in the side, Napoli were devastating because Ossiman, his characteristics are unique in Serie A. There is no striker in the league that possesses the attributes that he has. Like he's very gangly and he's but he's lightning quick. He's strong. He's powerful. He's really good in the air. And Serie A doesn't have that kind of striker. A lot of strikers in Serie A are very technically good, small, you know, good on the ground, sl- low center of gravity. Kind of, fe- kind of think like Dries Mertens. Serie A has a lot of those type strikers. They don't have a lot of Victor Ossiemans, and he had scored nine goals in fourteen games in all competitions, and he'd started this season really well. And I felt feel still feel that his injury could impact. How Napoli do over the next over the course of the next few months, and then of course, Osimhen if he comes back, him Koulibaly and Nguisa will all go to the African Cup of Nations, and they have been three of Napoli's key players this season. So again, in January, you don't know how Napoli are going to do and what state they'll be in, say by February or mid February. But if they can hang in there, I can definitely see Napoli. Having a maybe winning their first title for what since 1990 when Diego was still playing. Um, but yeah, like I said, they have a really good starting 11. But once you start players getting injured, there's a lot of chinks in the armor. Emma, just to round out the top four, then, and you've mentioned them already, is uh, Atlanta. And just looking at their, their recent results, I mean, it's it's absolutely crazy that every season they seem to come back and just entertain. I mean, you look at the 
two games against Manchester United, the three two and the two all. But even in in domestically, you know, there's three twos uh, at Napoli at the weekend, four nil against Venezia, five uh, two against Spezia. Um, I mean, it, it always seems to be an absolute goal fest. Um, and I think that's five, four or five seasons now under Gasparini. And every year they seem to come back. They continue to entertain and they continue to to get results and stick around the top four. And you just kind of have to wonder how sustainable it is because it is a, an absolutely incredible run uh, to come back year after year and to kind of stick by by what they know and, and still get results, entertain, go, score loads of goals um, and, and somehow get into Europe. Yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's just... It's kind of the reason why we love this game. You know, they haven't spent a lot of money. It's all down to the coach and Gasparini. And I think Atalanta have got to a point now where they've got three consecutive seasons of Champions League football. If they finish top four this season, that'll be a fourth season. The revenue, they haven't overspent. You know, the the Procassi family who run the club are very well run. And year on year, they make profits. They sell maybe one key player every summer. Although in saying that last season or last summer, sorry, they didn't really sell anyone, as far as I remember, which was the first summer in a long time that they there wasn't one key departure. Um, but they just come back year after year, and they just <laughs> Adela- I like in Atalanta to Ranner. You know what you get before <laughs> before you watch them. You know you know you know you know you know what you're paying for. You know what you, when you turn on an Atalanta game, you know what you're going to get. Um, they don't try to like you know hide anything or mask deficiencies. They just they just go for it, and that's all down to Gasparini. Um, and I think this will continue until the day Gasparini leaves. Um, it's kind of like I said, they're very well run. They record profits year on year. You know they're not overspending. They're not going beyond their means. They won't go bust anytime soon. And I think just the recruitment has been really really smart. Like Duvan Sabata. Luis Mariel, Josep Ilicic, they've just got the recruitment so... Obviously, they've had some failures, but in the main, they've had they've got so much right over the last three or four years. And the problem with Atalanta for the last maybe three seasons, they've always started the first half of the season really slow, and then they just kill teams in the second half of the season. But it's too late to actually fight for the Scudetto. And the feeling was that I think they just get the the open third of a season right, and if they kept it up, then by this by say come April or May, they would actually be in with winning a title, which would be truly historic if Atlanta could win a title. They've never even been top even for one day, and that's something that Gasparini said. He was asked after the Napoli game about you know a Scudetto tilt, and he was like why we can't talk about this, I can't talk about this, because Atalanta have never been top of the table, not even for a single day. And I won't talk about it again until we are top. And he says, until that day happens, we're just... (laughs) They come out with the cliche, you know, 40 points, you know, avoiding relegation, you know, that's the goal. They say that every year, even even if they finish third or second or fourth. Um, So, yeah, if they could just get the first half of the season right, you know... Come the spring, they should be in the mix for a title challenge. And if Napoli continue to falter and the Milan clubs maybe, you know, as we alluded to earlier, they aren't as strong as, you know, you know, say in the 90s, whatever. There's no reason why Atalanta can't because, you know, they've beaten Juve at home for the first time since, I think, 1989. You know, that was, you know, you're talking over 30 years without 
winning Inchirin. So Jasper just continues to break records and they entertain and they score tons of goals and they're just a joy to watch. And I think if there has been talk about them buying Jeremy Boga from Sassuolo in January, if they were to get him in, he would give them a bit more depth. And I really wouldn't rule out. I think it kind of depends on how they do tomorrow um, against Villarreal. If they win, they'll be they'll qualify for the round of 16, which will give them more money. And if they maybe invest in a couple of players in January, I don't see why. Ad- you, you can't see Atalanta not figuring or having a say in the Scudetto race come, you know, come the spring. But they're just they're just they're just a joy to watch. You know, you know when you turn on the TV what you're gonna get, and I love that. Emma, it feels strange to be talking about the title race and even the top four, and yet we haven't mentioned Juventus or Roma yet. Um, <laughs> uh, starting with Juventus, I mean, there was a lot of talk when you know Ronaldo left; they'd be a, a more fluid, more you know progressive attacking type of team, not so much relying on somebody. Um, Allegri's been quite stubborn with that kind of four-four-two with those four central midfielders across um, midfield and, and, you know, Chiesa probably has struggled to produce the excellent form he had last season in particular. Um, I felt their 2-0 at the weekend was the best I've seen them play this season. I, I know the uh, the opponent wasn't up to much, but, um, and Shevchenko could be very disappointed with how they played. But uh, do you think they're starting to find just a bit more rhythm in the last few weeks? Um, it's difficult to say. I mean, there, there was a false dawn before. Um, I kind of felt Allegri had turned the corner when they beat Chelsea in Turin. I think when was that October? Um, in a four four two, and they kind of put every man, their dog, and a bus behind the ball, and then kind of hit on the counter and Chiesa scored. And I kind of felt that Allegri had kind of turned the corner because he wanted to reinstall the UV DNA. The in Italian, they say Grinta, you know, like basically suffering for the cause, you know, grinding out a victory, which is pretty much how Juve have existed for their entire, you know, history. Um, Juve have never really entertained, even though they tried that, you know, they tried to rewire their DNA with Maurizio Sarri and Pirlo. They wanted to change the brand and kind of become known as the Italian Man City or Barcelona or whatever. And it was just a disaster. Juve just are not built to play that way. So Allegri has kind of been trying to reinvigorate them and get that old belief back. And I felt they'd achieved that against Chelsea. But then after that, you know, they, got, they lost to Sassuolo and they lost to Verona. Um, and, you know, there's been some dire performances um, since that Chelsea game. So I'm not getting the hopes up too much, you know, against, you know, and the performance against Genoa. Because, I mean, Genoa at the moment, I think they would actually struggle in the League of Ireland. To tell you the truth, um, which is no reflection on Shevchenko, it's just that there's been a lack of investment in Genoa for years, and obviously they've got new owners in, but they can't do anything until January. So Shaba is basically, you know, having to do with what he has, which isn't a lot to tell you the truth. So it's it, you know, Juve were good against Genoa on Sunday, but it is Genoa, so I won't get mm. the hopes up. But Allegri has kind of he has switched the model now. From a four four two to a four two three one, and that seems—I say this, you know—in quotation marks—seems to have brought the best out of certain players. And he's got rid of the four central midfielders in a four four two idea, which was absolutely awful. Um, but I think also helps having Paulo Dybala fit. The problem is you never get him fit for a long 
you know, string of games. You know, he might play for two or three games, he pick up an injury, and then he's out for a month or six weeks, and then you start the the cycle again. Um, I've always felt that Allegri is going to need time because this Juve squad is just a bloated mess. Like the ban- the recruitment has been awful the last two or three years. And uh, the new Tottenham sporting director, Fabio Paratici, has to take responsibility because Juve are just a mess, you know. And Salon Ronaldo, Juve definitely... <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird situation because Ronaldo scored over 100 goals for Juve, but Juve regressed with every year that he was there. You had to service him, but mm. off-the-ball issues, Ronaldo really hindered the team. And Juve, Juve got worse with every year he was there. And now he has left. But they ha- the manner in which Ronaldo left, and Giorgio Chiellini has talked about this, he's like, he should have given us enough time. You know, at said the beginning of August, Ronaldo said, right, I want to leave. And supposedly there was a pact between Ronaldo and Juventus that by August 10th, if there was no suitors for Ronaldo from abroad, he would stay at Juventus. But what was it, two or three days before the window was about to shut and then he leaves. And Juventus weren't happy about that because then they were struggling to find a replacement. And say what you want about Ronaldo, but he scored a lot of goals and that is difficult to replace with two or three days left. So this season was always going to be difficult for Allegri and he was kind of putting out fires left, right and centre. So he was always also going to need time. And to be honest, at this point, the top four finish, what I think would be a miracle. You know, uh, I was saying to a couple of friends of mine that I think he wants to maybe finish in the the, the Europa Conference League uh, places because that's a competition Juve have never won. So maybe they're going to try and win that next season. <laughs> but um, I generally think a top four finish would be would be if if Juve got fourth, I would be very very impressed because to be honest, for the most part this season they've been awful. Yeah, and already seven points off at Atlanta, and as you said, they usually peak later in the season. So. Uh, it's a big task on their hands. Not helped by the former Chesney either, who's <laughs> been a yeah. bit shambolic as well. Um, yeah, like at the start of the season, he he gave away like seven points. Literally was the contributing factor to Juve drawing games or losing games. But he's, his form is picked up now. Mm. But yeah, and it also didn't help that Juve actually turned down the chance to sign Donnarumma in the summer to keep faith in Chesney. And then Chesney made all these mistakes. <laughs> Yeah, and on to Roma then. Um, we're experiencing Jose season three when it's, you know, month five uh, of his stint, which is... He's fast-tracking I mean, the process. Yeah, I mean, they were warned by several of us, including myself as United fan, that, you know, it, it doesn't get any prettier as time goes on. But I suppose really since the 6-1 in Norway, uh, I know there were potentially a few poor performances before that, but there was there was plenty of optimism about Roma early in the season, particularly, you know, the form of Abraham and Pellegrini and, um, you know, Mkhitaryan looked like he might be carrying on his, his impressive form from last year. And it's all just seemed to have fallen off a cliff and bemoaning the squad depth in particular. And, and I mean, the intermatch, I know they had seven injuries, I think, but it was probably the most shambolic 45 minutes a Mourinho team has produced, certainly in Serie A, um, uh, summed up by poor old Rui Patricio <laughs> and conceding that corner. So, uh, <laughs> I suppose, like, where do Roma go from here? Is it sustainable to just stick with Mourinho for the season uh, and hope that things get better? Because they're really on a downward slope at the moment. I mean, that was the type of performance at the weekend that it's it's tough to survive. 
Yeah, I mean, the problem was not so much getting beat by Inter 3-0 because, I mean, that could happen. Inter have a far better squad, far better players, but it was the manner of the performance. Like, Roma were just listless. It was just a soulless performance. There just there was no desire. It, it, it seemed like they threw in the towel after, like, 15 minutes and they just kind of went through the motions for the rest of the game. Um to me, that was the more worrying thing from a Roma perspective than the actual result, because I mean that could happen. As I said, Inter are a far better team. You know, it's funny. I agree with Mourinho to an extent that Roma squad isn't that good, and Francesco Totti has come out this week and said there's no champions in this Roma team, and he's right. There isn't, and I agree with Mourinho to an extent. But at the same time, Roma spent more money last summer than any team in Serie A. Which and this goes against Mourinho. If Roma hadn't spent a dime, Mourinho would have a case and he would have sympathy from many within Italy. But the fact that they spent forty million in Abraham, Tommy Abraham, who has done well for the most part, he's kind of been unlucky. He he seems to hit the post or the crossbar in every game he plays. Um, I think he's he scored eight in all competitions and four of them have come in Serie A. But he does seem to hit the woodwork a lot. Um. But if Mourinho, if Roma hadn't spent in the summer, Mourinho would definitely have a stronger case. But the fact that they have and the results are not going the way that all the Roma fans would like is going against him. And he's busy just, he's kicking out against everyone. You know, he, he threw four or five players under the bus after the, the Bodo Glimt disaster, the 6-1 in Norway. Um, and he sent them into the stands for the following game. Um, I mean, Roma are seven points worse off at the same stage last season compared to now, you know, under Paolo Fonseca. Um, and Mourinho, you know, Mourinho's legend is that he's this master communicator and, you know, he will solidify a defence and make them hard to beat. But you can't say that about Roma at the moment. They're too easy to beat, you know, for the most part. And they look more secure under Fonseca last season than Mourinho this season. And Considering what Roma are paying Mourinho, I think it's seven million euros a season. He's the highest paid coach in Serie A. I think he's on a par with Max Allegri. You know, Roma fans are kind of getting shortchanged at the moment, um, and it, the jury's out on whether you know the freaking group who hired him have told him that you know there is a long term project. But if Mourinho continues to poison the waters as he's doing, you know, he's hitting out against referees saying decisions are not going their way. All the classic Mourinho, you know, shithousery that he's infamous for. You know, if he continues down this path and the results don't improve, I think he will get the season, but I don't know if he'll get past that. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of felt, felt, given Juve's recent struggles, that Roma just might sneak fourth, but I really can't see. If they finish fifth, I'd be very impressed. Just quickly then, Emmett, um, I think we're 15 or so years on from, from Calcio Poli and, um, you know, it looks like Juventus under the microscope again, they're being investigated for some uh, from some questionable looking transfers. And I think even at the time, it raised a lot of um, a lot of queries in relation to Arthur um, and Miralem Pjanic, uh, that, uh, <laughs> that old switcheroo between uh, Juventus and, and Barcelona, which looked absurd at the time um and it turns out it could uh it could potentially cost Juventus dearly um I mean that's not the only transfer 
that's supposedly under investigation. And I know there's other teams under investigation as well. I think uh, Christian Romero's transfer to uh, Spurs uh, being one. But um, I think Pavel Neved has come out and, and, and said that, you know, there's, there's no foul play that'll all kind of wash over. Um, and it doesn't seem to have kind of really gripped the the, the media um, swell yet. But do you think there's anything there? Or do you think this is something that'll kind of quickly wash over and it's not going to be uh, uh, anywhere near as, as bad as what the Calciopoli uh, turned out to be? Uh, no, I don't think it'll be as bad as Calciopoli. I think that was because that was so many teams and it was entire... Well, I was going to say it was, a, it was a system, but this is also a system... Uh, in Italy, they say plus Valenza, which basically means capital gains. You know, basically inflating player uh, player transfers. You know, like we saw with Artur and Miralem Pjanic. Miralem Pjanic, easy for me to say. Um, I mean, I, I wrote about this for Forbes like a week ago when the news started to break. I mean, it's not really a surprise. Anyone who, you know, saw that when that deal happened, the Pjanic and Artur switched, you're thinking... How have Juventus got sixty million for Mer- for a thirty year old Merlin Pjanic when you maybe wouldn't have paid a packet of chewing gum for Pjanic at that point? You know he was he'd been a couple of years at Juve and his form had been terrible. You know how how have Juve managed to swindle 30, 60 million from Barcelona? But it was clearly done for an you know for accounting reasons mm-hmm. to balance the books for the uh, the half year uh, the the at the end of June they obviously balance the books. I, I don't really know all the accounting ins and outs, but I know there's like a half year balance sheet and a you know a end of year twelve yeah. twelve month. So obviously it's for the the halfway point and the having to fix some numbers. But I mean anybody who saw that deal knew that something wasn't right. Um, and Napoli are also involved with the Victor Ossiman deal um, with Lille and um, the the deal with Man City with Joe. Cancelo or Cancelo when he went to Man City and Danilo came the other way. That's also also under the microscope. But a lot of it is Juve's under twenty three players who no one's ever heard of that are going for like seven, eight, nine, ten million. Um, Emil Oduro, who was a goalkeeper for Juve for like three or four years and made one appearance, he went to Sampdoria for twenty million. And where they got that figure from, or how Sampdoria were willing to <laughs> agree to that amount of money, I don't know. But again, the problem comes down to how does one value a player and how do you know if it's right or wrong? You know, there's no system in place. Obviously, we know, you know, Lionel Messi isn't sold for two million, you know. Yeah. You know, there is no one, you know, central pillar that says, or body, governing body that says, right, you know, this player is worth 15 million and anything over that. You know, it's all subjective, but obviously we have to be realistic and know that, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, you know, Kylian Mbappe are worth hundreds of millions of euros. And, you know, someone who plays for the under 23s is maybe worth two. But it's how do you prove that in a court of law that a player is worth X amount of money? Um, I mean, this has happened in Italy before. This is not a new phenomenon. You know, plus Valenza has existed in Serie A for decades. This is how a lot of teams have done business because revenues in Serie A have been stretched. COVID has impacted it. Um, I mean, Milan and Inter went through this in the 2000s. I think Parma and Lazio went through this in the late 90s, early 90s, when their empires were crumbling with Parmalat and Cheerio. Um 
this is this is this isn't new, but the problem is Italy Italian clubs rely on capital gains to keep afloat because there's the lack of you know they, they don't have the Premier League's TV might the the stadium revenue is little in comparison to say the Premier League or the Bundesliga. So plus Valenza, as it's known, is a lifeblood for many of the clubs. So this is definitely nothing new. When Juventus are involved then it becomes magnified tenfold. Um and some deals are obviously clearly, you know, don't look right. And I think too that this is a consequence of the club. You know, when I when we talked earlier about Atalanta not overstretching themselves, the opposite is true of Juventus. You know, the Ronaldo deal, even when it happened, Juve were overstretching and then COVID happened in you know what 16, 17 months after they signed him. And then suddenly it was like, we are struggling to afford Ronaldo because of his wages. And it's not, you know, it's not, Ronaldo is involved in the, in the, in the investigation, but not for the deal more in terms of, um, there's a document, um, there was leaked tops or tops that were leaked. Um, and there's a special document that apparently Juventus don't want prosecutors to see. And it's in relation to, Ronaldo's deal but Ronaldo isn't under investigation himself but they want to talk to him and Jorge Mendes his agent so it is very murky but I generally don't believe you know there was someone that came out and said Juventus should be stripped of their last two or three league titles and put down to Serie B again you know that won't happen like realistically it won't happen I mean it didn't happen in Milan and Inter in the 2000s I can't see you know why it'll happen now but again with Juventus Juventus have this weird relationship with Italy where everything's magnified because they are the biggest team in Italy and the book is kind of thrown at them a bit harsher than, say, you know, if it was Roma or Napoli or whoever. Um, but it is it is a consequence of Juve living beyond their means, going all in on Ronaldo, and the finance is really not paying off. And they're in this position now where they're having to forge or overinflate transfer fees. And I mean, it's kind of like we said, the, the Artur Pjanic, you know, <laughs> you only had to look at that deal to know that something wasn't right. Yeah, I think most football fans, even if uh, you were only uh, uh, an onlooker, probably saw that and you're thinking, Jesus, where did they, where did they pull those figures from? Um, <laughs> I suppose talk of, of relegation and, and uh, titles being stripped a, a little bit premature, um, but I suppose, you know, the murky world of, of transfer dealings nowadays and especially when you have the likes of uh, Jorge Mendes getting his nails into uh, certain deals, uh, you can be sure there's a, it's not entirely by the book. It may be by the accountancy books, uh, just about, but uh, it's uh, it's never straightforward. Um, Emmett, I'm not going to force you to predict the league uh, at this stage of the season. I think uh, <laughs> I'll spare you of that for, for tonight, but uh, thanks a million for coming on. No, no problem. Pleasure to be here. And, um, always, always glad to come back if, if you want to talk more, more Calcio. Respect. Respect. Respect, man. Respect. 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 Resp